welcome to The Doctor Diaries, a podcast which will take you behind the scenes of the intriguing medical world. Join me, Hanya Rothersby, an experienced business consultant in the medical sphere, as I chat to our guests who will take us through their insights, experiences and ideas as an expert, thought leader and trailblazer in this exciting medical world. Today, we are recording our first episode of the Call My Lawyer series. This four-part series will address key legal considerations of the business of medicine. It is my pleasure to have as my expert guest, Megan Warren, who is the Principal Lawyer at Burke & Associate Lawyers in High Street, Armidale, Victoria, Australia. Megan has provided excellent legal advice to my medical business clients over the years, and we both felt it would be beneficial to share our legal and business insights with our listeners of the Dr. Diary podcasts. So before I introduce Megan, let me start with a quick disclaimer provided by, of course, Birkin Associate Lawyers. And just to let you know that the type of legal information that will be provided in each episode is of a general nature and should not be considered as formal legal advice. If you do require assistance or have a legal question, please don't hesitate to reach out to Megan and her contact details will be found in the episode notes. So, Megan, welcome. Thank you, Hanya. Thanks for having me. My absolute pleasure. I know it's been a conversation of ours yeah. to sort of do this for a while, so I'm so excited we're finally um, getting together to do it. So Yeah, me too. Um, me too. We might start at the very beginning, Megan. Maybe yeah. tell me a bit of more about yourself and about your journey. And my journey, my journey in the law. Well, I guess so my career started um, in the law I know it sounds like a long time ago, but 25 years ago, I've been, you know, working in law firms in some capacity since that time, since I was around 16, which is, um, yeah, I'm giving away my age there. But (laughs) (laughs) Um, So I started my career sort of seriously after that in the law in London in around 2001. So I worked there for a couple of years, took a gap, couple of gap years out from my law degree, um, supporting two real powerhouse family lawyers there in London and then moved back to Melbourne, finished my law degree. And then from there, I've worked predominantly in commercial law firms like um, Morris Blackburn Commercial, Goldman Legal, and then becoming a principal at Burke and Associates Lawyers. So I've been here since um, 2015. And my practice here predominantly is in um, commercial and disputes. On the commercial side, it's uh, really in, in advice, transactions um, and the, the disputes, which, of course, everybody tries to avoid, but, you know, it happens nonetheless now and then, and also in uh, medical and health law and wills and estates. So um, predominantly my client base are professionals and your SMEs in the, the health and medical space, although, you know, I do have clients in other walks of life as well so and that's where we've sort of really connected over yeah your experience in that exactly because it is a very unique business area exactly exactly I mean they're wonderful clients 
to work for. It's, um, you know, essentially, I guess the one of the real draw cards for me in terms of working with that that sort of client base is, you know, they're all super intelligent, usually, you know, very, very sophisticated and entrepreneurial, as well as having that focus on, on patient care. So for me, that's a really rewarding client to work for. So um, especially building a, a longer term relationship with them, you know, you grow with them, you know, and they grow with you. So it's, yeah, it's very, yeah, rewarding. Yeah. Yeah, I do agree. Yeah. So I believe you also have been the Executive Director of the Law Institute of Victoria. Victoria I have, I have. So um, no longer um, a Director of the Law Institute, but I I did do a um, sort of three-year term with them um, and part of that term was as an Executive Director, which was super rewarding in terms of actually being able to give back to my profession, you know, it's um, a different role in terms of, you know, not not obviously client facing and things, but um, being able to make contribution to improve the legal profession to, you know, in terms of uh, delivery of service to the community. So I loved that, loved that role. Um, and also I should mention that I'm admitted to practice not just in Australia but also in um, New York um, in the US. Wow. So, yeah, so I sat the New York bar exam um, leading up to 2019 and then I was admitted in 2019. So I passed on my first try, which is pretty rare for a, for a foreign lawyer, so really intensive study but worth it in the end, very probably one of the, I would say, one of the hardest things I've to do wow. so yeah congratulations thank you and thank i would you. say that's not a very common thing for an australian lawyer to have that no have passed the new york bar not very common i've met um there are a few of us i've met sort of a handful here in victoria there's a number of barristers that have both um the dual qualification um and a number of other sort of senior lawyers that i, I know of here in victoria but it's you know there's not many of us oh, so well yeah yeah so wow. it's um what an achievement it is and i think i mean it's uh, people often ask me you know sort of you know why you know why like what led you to do the new york bar and I mean, at that point in time, it was, you know, I had a, a particular client matter where it was looking like it might become beneficial, might become a need in terms of um, the ongoing litigation in that matter that was happening in the US. Ultimately, that case settled. But in the meantime, I'd gone on to, to start my study. But it started to occur to me that, um, you know, more and more people are taking their business, you know, internationally and across mm. borders and not just in terms of, um, you know, potentially setting up their business and, you know, needing advice across jurisdictions, but they're also potentially getting themselves into trouble commercially. So it might be that they enter a contract and there's a dispute, you know, one of the parties is in the US, one of the parties is here, kind of how do they navigate that um and so having a lawyer who's got the knowledge of both jurisdictions I think um I started to see that there would be a, a bit of an increasing need for that so yeah, yeah. that's that's amazing and that's yeah. really obviously gives you so many skills that you can support your clients with yeah 100% <laughs> more than just in Australia but internationally too, 100% so I mean we've had um you know since that qualification um, has come about. We've had clients who are, say, based in Europe, but they're Australian, but they live residing in Europe, and then they're entering a contract with a US party. So it's kind of, you know, it's got all of these elements to it, but us having, you know, that qualification and experience has been really beneficial for the client. So, Fantastic. Yeah. It's really created an international service, which yeah. is 
Hundred percent. Really admirable. It's yeah. fantastic. And yeah. Thank you. Know, you. The, the other area in which I'd love to explore today, especially, mm. is mm. that you're working medical law. Yeah. And uh, what attracted you into that this area? Yeah. Because it is a very unique area, and it's something that you know you really need to have an understanding of that medical, yeah, commercial world, yeah. to provide advice. Yeah. A hundred percent. So I'd say it's it's coming up to sort of ten years now that I've had that the focus of really working with clients, you know, initially it was just more of an industry focus on working with clients in that space. And then that's developed into uh, providing advice on the more specific medical and health law related aspects that are um, relevant for that, that client base too. But I mean, as I was saying earlier, it's, that that sort of industry client, um, it's so rewarding being, you know, they give back to our community in, you know, and service our community in such important ways. And to be able to, you know, work side by side with them in that journey is, you know, super rewarding for me. Mm. Um, so, and also having a focus on a particular industry, it's more valuable to the client too, we find that, you know, essentially the issues will come up for a say a GP that we've seen hundreds of times before and so we're able to give advice very quickly um, cost effectively and in a way that where we actually uh, you know understand their industry understand their you know busy practice day too so yeah look yeah. I agree with that so mm-hmm. in our business consultancy as mm-hmm. well business advisory could go across a lot of industries mm-hmm. but we only focus in healthcare too yeah. because as you say the more you're sort of working in that one area yeah you'll see the same issues yeah and I suppose that really is the purpose of us getting together and putting this podcast together because there's definitely in terms of business and legal some key areas that we need to sort of bring to the attention which is probably a good time to sort of have a little bit of an outline about our series so um let's have a let's have a chat about the the key topics I mean Today's main topic is going to be around employment contractor yep. versus employees versus licensee. Yeah. Uh, so we'll we'll explore that a bit more, but maybe you could tell us a bit more about what we're thinking to do moving forward. Yeah, absolutely. So and and look, in terms of these uh, potential sort of topic areas that I thought might be relevant. I'm very open to you know what your listeners you know want to hear about too. So we're cert- I'm certainly not married to um, different topics. If there's things that your listeners really want to hear about, you know, let's do that. That's so, a great idea. So yeah. I actually might pop in there that you, as you're listening to this podcast, we are dropping these episodes um, monthly after you hear this uh, first episode. So feel free to drop us a line in the episode notes will be our contact details mm-hmm. and we'll give you a bit of an overview of what we're thinking but if there's something that's even more pertinent, please let yeah, us know. Yeah, absolutely. So what I had in mind were uh, things like um, buying a practice, you know, selling a, a practice, whether that's a medical or another health-related practice, um, setting up a practice from scratch or, um, you know, essentially developing any kind of business in the health space from scratch, Um, expansion. So a lot of our clients are looking at things like, you know, licensing or franchising type models for their business. And then also one other thought I had that would be relevant in terms of licensing your brand. So the risks around that and also the benefits around doing that um, for your business. Yeah, that's really um, interesting. And I think the Another area that you and I would love uh, mm. sort of discussed and, and worked mm. with in the past mm. is that 
innovation, medical yeah. innovation and yeah. registering your yeah. intellectual property. Huge. So, area. Yeah. 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 We'll be t- covering that as well. Yeah. That's yeah. exciting. So, yeah, tune into our podcast series. <laughs> and we will let you know in advance um, the, the, the episodes that are coming up. But, uh, yeah, so let's talk about things that we've all been through recently. Yeah. And it's COVID, yeah. the last two years. Yeah. So I have sort of had a chat to most of my guests on yeah. how that disruption has affected them. Mm-hmm. How did you find that it affected you and the impact on your medical clients? Yeah, yeah. So I guess it's the biggest impact, I guess, in my world was sort of threefold. So um, the firm, myself personally, and then and then for our clients. I mean, for the firm, there's the obvious things like, you know, having to pivot from, you know, office-based practice to entirely digital. I mean, we We've always been a firm that adopts technology pretty quickly anyway. So it wasn't, that wasn't a huge undertaking for us. It was more just having to do things fast, you know, not knowing what kind of government restrictions were coming down the pipeline or, you know, sort of how the pandemic was going to unfold. But once we sort of got past that and settled in, the biggest challenges from the firm perspective came about in terms of our people and making sure that, you know, we keep them positive. We had a lot of concerns about people's individual sort of well-being and how they were coping. So making sure that we were staying connected with them, you know, was super important and making sure that our culture was preserved as well across a Zoom no, I know. That's just sort of, yeah, yeah. It's interesting that it wasn't, yeah. uh, from my own experience, it, mm. that transition worked well. Yeah. Because uh, I think pre-COVID there was an expectation of seeing each other face-to-face. Yeah. So when that expectation was taken away, the mm. actual quality of what you could provide mm. was pretty good yeah. through Zoom, I found. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. all teams. Sorry, not to promote Zoom. Yes. No, sorry. Yeah, we use, we use both. We use both. <laughs> yes. uh, um, no, absolutely. But I think, um, and I think in terms of the client, you know, conferences with our clients and things that that was all actually worked better. I think in a lot of ways, especially in commer- the commercial side of things, it saves the client time, saves you know, in terms of travel, you're able to sort of have a number of meetings quite quickly in terms of the efficiency of things but I think with our people and maintaining our culture it's you know so much of that is about you know us being around each other and being colleagues and like popping into the next office and what do you think about this you know how are you going today and Mm. you just you don't have that like we scheduled um tea breaks and zoom coffee breaks and things that's not quite the same so um I guess that's the part that we found to be a challenge for me personally, I did have, I had a baby, I was pregnant, had a baby oh, during, thank you, thank you, <laughs> during um, you know, 2021 really. So I, I spent a lot of that time being locked down, working, you know, um, which is, yeah, challenging when you're when you're expecting a bub and then having to sort of give birth in a very stringent, you know, COVID regulations in, around the hospital and things. It's It's a lot. But, again, you know, got through it. And now I have a beautiful baby boy, so all worth it. Yeah, congratulations. (laughs) Yeah, Um, Um, and I think for clients, uh, ultimately the biggest challenge for them were, were, I mean, the clients where their businesses were ultimately disrupted entirely. So 
for example, had have clients who had international travel businesses that just, you know, came to a halt, you know, almost overnight and then trying to rebuild and, you know, change their business model, not knowing sort of what's going to happen in the next few years. And some of those clients just ended up saying, look, we're just going to take it, you know, a bit of a time out really yeah. until things settle down. But in the health space, it created a lot of innovation and we've had current clients and heaps of new clients who are just really wanting to take the most of the opportunity that that digitization of health has, has really oh, given them. I totally so. agree. So from a business mm. a strategy this perspective is exactly the same. I found yeah. at the beginning of COVID, everybody just went into suspend mode. Yeah. And everybody held their breath for about four weeks yes. to see. But then, you know, on you know, telehealth and being able to communicate with patients yeah. remotely and I think a lot of those things that were in the pipeline yeah. in the healthcare space have been fast-tracked um, and which is, I, from my perspective now, I'm working with a lot of businesses in business reset. Mm-hmm. Bringing, continuing to keep those innovations in the business is actually yeah. allowing them to be more scalable, yes. grow, do all those great things, which yes. we're all exploring buying and selling practices yes. later. Yes. But so COVID as the disruptor was bad but also Good. Yeah, absolutely. Was, right. Well, that, it, it sounds like we're all coming out of it quite positive. You with a, a, a new baby, which yeah, is exciting. Yeah. And uh, this is another podcast on its own, but women in business, <laughs> juggling, up, running a business and then a family. Well, absolutely. I totally understand. It is we'll, definitely we'll, another podcast, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we might get on to our um, first episode here. So for our inaugural episode, we wanted to start with an important, relevant and timely subject. Employment and medical practices, specifically for doctors and medical practices looking at employees versus contractors versus licensees. It is a broad topic, but, Megan, there have been some recent court cases and judgments that prompted us to start off our Call My Lawyer series because really that came from what's the first phone call you want to make um, with the most recent case study. So let's let's look into that. So I'll, I'll hand over to you. So, um, I mean, what I do day in, day out, obviously, is the law. So, um, but I'm, I mean, I'm aware enough to know that talking in legal speak about the law and, you know, the principles and things is, be quite boring but um, it's, it's not for me but you know if you're everyday person it can be quite boring and and you know a lot of jargon and things so I'll try and sort of simplify things as much as possible yes please um, and that would be ideal because yeah. it is it is an overwhelming yeah. um area like even for a lot of the businesses I work with it's yeah. people who are highly medically trained suddenly having to run their businesses so yes. yeah here in layman's terms perfect yeah great so uh, the best way to do that sometimes often in the law is to talk about a case study in particular. So um, it, this topic is really around um, the distinction between different types of legal relationships that might operate in a you know and health health practice. Usually, you know, private health practice is, is what we're talking about. So you've got your employees, you've got um, potentially contractors, and you might have other types of legal relationships there like tenants or licensees, and they all have different meanings under the law. What we've seen a lot with practices over the year is confusion about what type of legal relationship they have and 
Um, also sort of trying to mix different types of legal, legal relationships which can get them into trouble. So one particular um, case where this happened recently um, is a case in New South Wales and it's um, short, shortly referred to as um, Thomas and Naz versus the Chief Commissioner of um, State Revenue and essentially it was about payroll tax. Yeah. It was an audit by the State Revenue Office on um, a group of practices that were run by the doctors, Thomas and Naz, um, on payments that were made to doctors that were practising in these centres. And these payments, the owners had always understood that the doctors were contractors, you know, or, you know, running their own independent business and so that payroll tax didn't need to be paid on um, payments made to them. Um, the State Revenue Office had a different view, audited them and sort of hit them with a, you know, back payment of payroll tax for a number of years for clo- like close to a million dollars. Wow. Yeah. That's significant. It was so significant. these, um, yeah. Thomas and Nez had no idea? No, no. They'd, uh, I assume that they've, you know, had advice from their accountant, not sure whether a lawyer was involved or not uh, about the structure of their practice, but, you know, ultimately the way that they were using a certain type of agreement, you know, across, as I understand it, was the same sort of form of agreement across all of the practices, um, which had a number of terms in them, which I'll refer to, but also the way that they were doing things in practice was a way that the State Revenue Office sort of deemed the doctors to be employees at law, if you like, regardless of what Thomas and Naz thought the relationship was, the State Revenue Office is saying, no, 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 we think because of what you say in the agreements and what you're doing in practice, they're employees. Mm. Well, I've got to say at that yeah. particular point, this is, I was very excited that our podcast was coming at this yeah. particular time Yeah, because this particular topic mm. Uh, mm. of employment law versus contractor is very important to all my clients but also all business owners because nearly all the practices of businesses that I'm working with or know of Mm. have that contractor arrangement and believe that the contract where they a medical practitioner comes to work for them, they provide a serviced office arrangement. Mm, mm. They take a percentage of their fees mm-hmm. and provide them a service. Yeah. That is the contractor arrangement. Yeah. But now that there's this grey, blurred area, mm. I think it was very important for us to put this podcast out today. Yeah. And I'd really now at this next point mm. like to explore with you what actually happened. Happened. Yeah. And then we'll explore what can we do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'll just step back a bit too that this distinction between the different relationships is important, not just for payroll tax purposes, but also superannuation guarantee contributions, employment entitlements, withholding income tax for doctors. So it's there's a whole raft of issues that come up if it's not done correctly. Mm-hmm. And, and this Thomas and Naz case too, there's been a number of other decisions before it in the medical and health space It's kind of that have built on each other. Thomas and Naz is the most, I suppose, conservative of all of them and is the one that's causing all the alarm bells mm-hmm. for, for practices out there. So the terms of this agreement that was used in that case, I guess the key terms that the tribunal, the New South Wales tribunal referred to were things like, so the doctors had to provide services on a five-day 
um, five day per week basis, including weekend rotation, and that they needed to uh, meet roster commitments and provide advance notice of things like planned vacations. Also, they had um, time that they were to take vacations was limited to four weeks in any 12-month period. Doctors had to promote the interests and the business of the medical centre and had to not channel patients away from the medical centre. There were terms around payment of hourly rates by the medical centre in certain circumstances, which is a big no-no. Um, there was retention by the medical centre of, of title or property in the business records. All patient fees and Medicare rebates had to be received into the bank account of the medical centre, which is, I guess, the, one of the biggest takeaways from this case. Uh, doctors had to abide by medical centres operating protocols and had to complete all documentation for that purpose. And finally, there was also a restrictive covenant or what's known as a restraint of trade in the agreement um, so that the doctors, when they left the medical centre, they had a, a bit of an exclusion zone of five kilometres from the medical centre for two years for the purpose of treating patients and things. So what's important to note is that the tribunal found that those terms, although they didn't say whether it was all of those terms or if there was one specific term that was a problem, it was basically they just referred to, oh, the agreement has these terms and we find as follows. So it, in that sense, it's difficult for us to say if you have one or two or three of these terms, that's it, you, you're going to lose. It's not It's not that situation. Um, so ultimately the tribunal found that the doctors were providing services that were a necessary part of the medical centre business and that the doctors therefore weren't just providing services to patients but they were also providing services to the medical centre. To running the business. That's right. Okay. Too. And the issue that the tribunal had was that the, the business of the practice was a medical centre business. The, the business was um, the medical centre was actually providing medical services, not just the doctor. You know, the, the medical centre couldn't say, that it was just a administrative and management services business. Mm. Ultimately, the tribunal didn't accept that argument uh, as a result of, of sort of these terms in the agreement is, is what, the, what the tribunal had relied on. So I guess the main takeaway point that the tribunal found is that they put extreme weight on the fact that all of the patient fees and all the Medicare rebates were received into the bank account of the medical centre. So that was seen to be um, the issue, that essentially all the payments are coming into the bank account of the medical centre. So the medical centre is the receiver of payments for medical services uh, rather than the doctor. I've got to say, Megan, that's pretty pretty much what happens at every Yes, it is. <laughs> so we'll explore what we need to do. But, yes, um, it is. It is definitely the... Anybody listening in, they'll... I'm not aware of any practice that does it any other way it's actually very really yeah. yeah 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 but it this case was very this I guess one of the differences about this case is it was very specific about the practicalities mm. of what's happening you know the flow of mains if you like which case law you know sometimes is, is rarely that specific it's more talking about the legal principles which this case did but it also referred specifically to what was happening you know yeah. in the flow of monies too yeah. so it's so that's why it's and again why it's causing so many um 
issues in practices now trying to comply with this decision. Yeah. Yeah. So let's let's look at that. Mm. So um, the, this now that this uh, has been put forward, mm. and there's. There's no appeal for this particular case at the moment. No. Well, I'm not aware that um, it could have been appealed to the New South Wales Supreme Court and I'm not aware that that it had um, by by the owners of the practice and I'm not aware um, that it has been. So at this point that decision, you know, is authority in, in uh, again, in New South Wales only because it's it relates only to payroll tax which is a state-administered tax in New South Wales. But in saying that, if there was a case that came up in Victoria um, on payroll tax, you can bet that this case will be pulled out by the State Revenue Office. Yeah, yeah, as, you know, persuasive sort of authority. Yeah, yeah. All right, so, well, that's the case, so Mm. that's quite clear. Mm. It's scary Mm. because a lot of those things people, everybody's doing. Yes. So, um, Megan, let's talk about the key learnings and... Mm. Any common questions you get asked and how to advise in regards to in general terms? Yeah, yeah. So I think in terms of I I suppose the key takeaways from that um, from that case is in terms of the host practice business, you know, the um, what was referred to in this case as the medical centre business. um, There are going to be issues with any health practitioners, you know, practising at the premises, there are going to be issues with them and, you know, them potentially being deemed to be employees at law if that practice isn't running a pure administrative and management services business only. As soon as um, that host practice is doing anything like potentially they may employ one doctor or and have the rest as contractors or perhaps they are receiving billings into their own account things like that have been taken to be indicators that it's not purely an administrative and management services business also one of the biggest factors um, to take into consideration here is that um, the host practice should never be paying the doctors essentially that it's the doctors if it is if it is really a purely administrative and management services business, then the doctor is always paying the host practice for services, for those administrative management services. It's never the other way around. So one of the uh, areas where um, the practices fell down in Thomas and Naz is that there were provisions in the agreement for the doctors to be paid hourly rates in some circumstances, potentially for, you know, weekend roster work and things like that which is that's an issue it's an issue you're not you're not then uh, in a situation where the doctors are always paying the host practice it's starting to work back the other way which is a problem and the uh, one of the biggest takeaways from this which I've mentioned is the flow of monies so um, patient billings there could be Medicare or health insurance rebates going into the bank account even if it's a holding account of the host practice just yeah with this case out there you you just can't you can't do it unless you want to make your practitioners employees you just can't do it it's it's and that's an issue now (laughs) yeah yeah massive yeah very very big yeah and 
So in terms of addressing this, I suppose, yeah. is this yeah. a, something that needs to be addressed immediately, do you feel? Um, I do because this case is, is out there and there are cases not specifically on point on that issue but other previous case law that sort of supports the same principles and it it looks like the case law is trending towards that more conservative way. So setting up if the doctor or other health practitioner is setting up their own um, bank account, you know, a separate one in their name, um, potentially giving uh, the host practice some authorities around, you know, viewing that account or, you know, even transacting on that account if that's better for sort of administrative purposes for yeah. collecting, administering fees. collections and, yeah, you know, deducting yeah. service fees and things like that. Alternatively, there can be um, sort of completely arm's length where essentially all the the monies are, are banked into the doctor's own bank account and there's a services fee rendered by the host practice and the doctor just has to pay it within five days yeah. or seven days From or whatever. From a business perspective, that's such a challenge it because is. Yeah. the practice takes on all the fiscal responsibility to mm-hmm. provide this service mm-hmm. office for this doctor to practice in. That's right. And there would need to be a rethink on Mm-hmm. When funds are being received, yeah. as in the service fee, yes, uh, there's a lot, a, a lot of yeah. rejigging around that would have to happen. And I understand too that um, from some of our discussions with practices, that some of the practice management software that's commonly used in, say, GP practices and things is um, doesn't actually even provide for this no. case. So in terms of, it, it always contemplates the host practice even as agent, which it, you know, usually always is, is that as agent the host practice is receiving these monies physically and then taking their service fee and remitting the balance to the doctor. That's what the the software all contemplates and is designed sort of in that yeah, way. So true. So I'm not sure if there are any plans for the software developers to yes. sort of <laughs> d- deal with I'm not sure how they're dealing with it. That will be interesting. Yeah, to, yeah, yeah, it will be interesting. Yeah. And, uh, we can explore that a bit yeah. later. But, yeah, yeah. We, there is has to be a rethink, mm. definitely. Mm. So, Megan, I suppose within this space, can you think of a most interesting example of a client who had to adjust their employment agreements and what they had and what, what you changed and what mm. the result was? Mm. So um, I think one, I mean, one of the interesting points was, as I mentioned around the software, that was something that I just, you know, wasn't aware of. And I have to say, I don't have a resolution for this, you know, the software issue. I think, I think definitely it's going to be beneficial for us to reach out to some of these software providers and, and just see how they're dealing with it. But I, I guess one, one of the biggest things is ensuring that the agreements that are being used in the practice are reviewed in light of this case because it may not be a huge review that's required but there will definitely be some some amendments that need to be made to terms and some associated advice to be given to the practice for not just the agreement but where the practices often fall down and what we've seen recently is what's actually happening in practice so you can have this agreement and it's perfect, I suppose, on paper from a compliance perspective, but it has to be followed in practice and there shouldn't be sort of additional controls or things like that being exercised by the host practice in 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 the practice. So one example, I guess, um, I'll give I'll give an example where I've seen it sort of fall over recently. So 
we had a um, practice that had been audited, and this is a uh, not a state revenue office audit, but a ATO audit for the purpose of unpaid, you know, minimum, minimum superannuation guarantee entitlements. So it was a chiropractic practice. Chiropractor had practiced at the premises for. 10 years or more, very long time, was disgruntled in sort of leaving, disgruntled with the owners and ultimately claimed that during that time they were actually an employee, you know, had an agreement that, you know, was pretty good in terms of the intention that, no, they weren't an employee, but um, it's not difficult for, for, for claims to be made in that way. It's essentially you know, making a complaint to the ATO, which costs them nothing, and the ATO will then audit the practice. So claim they was an employee and that they should be, you know, back paid superannuation. So looking at the assessment that the ATO had made in that circumstance, I mean, I found it really interesting that there were a number of, and we've got a, a sort of our own advice or table that sort of sets out all the different factors that the law looks at or the ATO in this case looks at in terms of deciding whether someone's an employee or not. And after going through all the different factors, there was one specific one that kind of tipped the ATO over in terms of saying that this chiropractor was an employee and that was a uniform. So Ah. the chiropractor was required to wear a uniform by the host practice, which had the host practice's logo and things on it. And for whatever reason, despite sort of ticking off all of these other issues, that was not okay. And that was kind of the indicator that it was an employment relationship. So I guess it's just an example of how small something might seem like to the host practice. This was something that just was such a minor detail, but in the eyes of the law, sometimes that minor detail can indicate a completely new legal yeah. relationship. So I guess it's just the importance of getting proper advice and yes. particularly in light of this this case, getting your agreements looked at and also having a conversation with your advisor, your accountant and your lawyer about what am I actually doing in practice? What do I expect these health practitioners to do? Because the devil's kind of in the detail. In yes, things. yes. Yeah. Totally agree. Yeah. So with business consultants, mm. yeah, that is definitely a, a key area that we'll be looking at yeah. uh, with a lot of our clients mm. existing and new. Mm. And you you and I imagine the same with existing and new. Yeah. You sort of mentioned you put together a little table yeah. of suggestions. Yeah. Um, are you happy for us to get that access to that to our listeners? Yeah, 100%. So um, it's really, I guess, a bit of a checklist for factors that the law looks at when determining whether someone's an employee or whether they're purely operating their own independent business. And again, it's not that you have to check off every single one. It's one of those situations where if it's a court, a tribunal, whether it's the ATO, whoever it is who's looking at it from a legal perspective, these are the things that they'll be looking to. In a perfect world, you would comply with all of them, but again, there have been cases where practices haven't complied with all of them and things have been okay. So, yeah. Yeah, just to be aware of the risks. 100%. Yeah. All right. So, for those, um, for our listeners, yeah. just the contact details to have access to Great. this checklist will be in the yeah. episode notes, will be fantastic. We'd love yeah. to sort of connect with you. So, Great. wow, what a really topical start to yeah. our series, Call My Lawyer. I think yeah. that this is um, 
come at the perfect mm. time, mm. perfect time for the listeners because yeah. even though it's just in New South Wales, as you said, it will be a reference to the other states yeah. and it probably will be only a matter of time. Yeah. And from running your business point of view, there's mm. probably some adjustments you can make yeah. to help you avoid It's put practices on alert all yeah, across Australia. So um, if any of your listeners have queries or, you know, just want to pick my brain, um, feel free to, to contact me and I can sort of share my wisdom on this area. Thank you, Megan. That's very generous of you and um, that that is fantastic. Mm-hmm. So, well, that's very exciting. That's our first episode. So very excited to have, have this topic. On our next podcast, mm-hmm. we're going to be covering off buying a practice, mm-hmm. all the key areas there. So yep. that will be dropping in about four mm-hmm. weeks from when you hear this particular episode. We'll put that on our socials Great. for everybody to know. But, yes, feel free to contact Megan and myself. All the details are in the episode notes. So just to wrap up the episode, thank you, Megan, for being part of this exciting series, Call My Lawyer. Thanks for having me, Hanya. It's been great. Thank you. Yes, and uh, look forward to doing many more episodes with you. Yeah, great. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Doctor Diaries. You can find out more about our amazing guests on our website, hanyaroversby.com.au. Or join our Instagram page, Dr Diaries Podcast, to find out more about our podcasts. We look forward to you joining us again.